Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mayo. Yeah. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I too am a critic. The, the, it sounded like you were about to introduce a musical act. <laughs> I know. And the the guys from Sparks, their names are male. Oh, I forgot so about Ron that. Ron and Ross Mayle. So you, okay. you could have been introducing Sparks. We'll do one of these days. We'll do an all Sparks related uh, email episode called You've Got Mail. Anyway, my name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me uh, Bibbs. You, you did say that part already. I'm, my name is William <laughs> Bibiani. Damn it. I can't. Do you have any idea how many times I've said that on a podcast? Uh, We're looking at thousands. You string them all together and you can go to the moon. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is our mail podcast. You write us emails. We answer your emails. Uh, that That's it. That's, yeah. that's your show. It's your time to shine. I'm Bibbs. He's Whitney. And you can email us at our email address, letters at critically net. Or if you'd prefer to go the old fashioned route, we have a P.O. box for males. Oh, the snails. <laughs> Whitney, what is our P.O. Box? <laughs> Bit of a weird mood tonight, aren't we? Yeah. Uh, our P.O. Box, uh, send it to uh, the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. And again, uh, we don't have time to read everything, but we do like to make sure we get to as many as we can, so we don't like to dilly-dally. Whitney, why don't we just jump into our first email? Yeah, why don't we just do that? I don't um, know, I asked le- you. Here's a letter from Lexa. Hello, hey, Lexa. Lexa. Thank you for writing in. Uh, it reads... <clears throat> Uh, to continue my series, I am back. Welcome back. Welcome uh, with back. my favorite pieces of media, starting with the letter E. This is oh, a, a yeah, recent yeah, yeah. Uh, topic of uh, an Iron List episode that Always we did. Always fun. Um, to go back over the rules, these are things that can be of any medium, mm. as long as they start with E. And at least from now on, they will not have appeared on Bibbs or Whitney's Iron List Top 10. So we've set all those. This is Lex's list. Uh, number 10, Eldritch Moon from 2016. Uh, this is an expansion to the classic card game, Magic the Gathering. It's probably my favorite set they have released, uh, perfectly juxtaposing gothic and cosmic horror while bringing about <clears throat> excuse me, a fun draft environment, having one of the best MTG-related pieces of fiction released, and one of my all-time favorite cards. Uh, what's MTG? I, don't I know. was hoping you knew, uh, so I wouldn't have to actually look that up. Uh, I, I will look... It's th- probably uh, the gaming equivalent of like I, Expanded Universe, perhaps. I assume there's something um, gaming-related to it. I like Eldritch Moon, though. It sounds like a compilation record of easy-listening, like, <laughs> fantasy-related tunes. I will see you under that ooze, Eldritch Moon. <laughs> Eldritch Ooh. just means, like, an unbelievable, like, ancient secret, I think. Like <clears throat> um, number nine, Empire of Sin from 2020. This is what I would describe as a crime simulator, as you can ca- take control of a prohibition MTV, era mob boss. MTV means Magic the Gathering. Oh, of course it does. Of course well, it does. We're, we're pretty thick. Oh, my um, God. I remember when that was invented. <clears throat> <laughs> I was there. I was one of the first people who bought packs for the damn thing. Yeah, I, was, I had I was no idea it would still be around. In When I was in college, uh, some of my friends were into Magic the <clears throat> Gathering, and they oh. tried to teach me, and I could, I just couldn't wrap my hand or, head yeah. around it. Nah, I just, I didn't have enough money to commit anyway, to it, uh, so I had to fill out like, b- a Back to uh, Empire of Sin here. Uh, you take control of uh, mob bosses for control of the city. It does a great job of allowing you to inhabit the role. In doing so, it perfectly fulfills its mission statement. Nice. Uh, number eight, eye candy. From 2015, a weird one-season TV show. It's honestly kind of a mess, but a mess that makes itself more enthralling as it goes along. This is one of those weird places where uh, the fact it has faults adds to the charm rather than detracts. 
I candy. Do I know that? I don't know eye candy. Starred Victoria <clears throat> Justice, a New York woman suspects that one of her online dates is a serial killer. Oh, fine. It was on MTV. Hmm. Huh. Slipped through the... Oh, oh it was written by R.L. Stein. <laughs> oh, fine. Like it's based on a novel by R.L. Stein. Oh, have a check. We'll have to look hmm. at this one. That is to the cancel too soon list. All right. Um, that sounds cool. Number seven, Eureka. I've heard of Eureka. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, one of the keystones of what I would call the sci-fi empathy era. This sci-fi cop drama is much more interested in making sure people involved are all right than solving a mystery, making it, and other contemporaries. Uh, and other contemporaries feel very different than your usual cop fare. That sounds cool. Number six, The End Game, 2022. Uh, this show is the perfect trash. It's over-the-top, <laughs> melodramatic, and the stakes can't get any higher, and by God, is it gl- a gloriously fun time. I recommend this to everyone. With Marina Backer in it, right? Oh, I don't know. The, and yeah, Marina Baccarin, is, it's like, um, she's like some kind of supervillain. It looks like The Blacklist, but with Marina Baccarin instead of oh, James Spader, okay. which is not a bad bitch. Uh, number five, Emily is Away, 2015. Hmm. This is a relationship drama played entirely through AIM chat. Ah. And it is powerful. That's cool. Did you ever read that book, Vox? It was really hot for a while. No. Nicholas something. Nicholas Vox. No, the, the title of the book was Vox. Um, okay. It, and it was uh, a transcription of, uh, like, an extended phone sex conversation. Oh, that's a cool yeah. medium, yeah. Uh, anyway. Uh, number four, Everything Everywhere All at Once. Uh, I'm probably underestimating this as, as it's brand new, but considering how quickly this is rising up my list of my all-time favorite movies, I have to give it a shout. Uh, just in general... Uh, this, just in general, has been a good year for things, starting with E. Hmm. Um, number three, Eldritch Horror, uh, 2013 to 2018. The bigger glo- globe-trotting sibling of Arkham Horror 2nd Edition, this game manages to expand the scope of its point of origin while also streamlining gameplay without losing the interesting bits of complexity. A triumph of game design. Huh? Uh, number two, End of an Empire, Cell Dweller, 2015. Uh, this industrial album chronicles the fall of a massive space entire... <clears throat> Uh, entire recording down uh, what it says in the title, The End of an Empire, and in doing so, it brings some of the best songs of the genre as an album only sits in competition with its immediate predecessor, who I will talk about someday, many years in the future. And uh, number one, one, Errant Signal from 2011 to the present. Okay. I don't know what Errant Signal... I am learning so much about stuff I did not know about. Lexa always manages to surprise. So number one is Errant Signal. Uh, One of the two people I would place at the forefront of YouTube video game critic. Oh, this is a person, Errant Signal. Ah. Errant Signal acts much as a historian for the fledgling media and as a critic of it. And in that balance, I think his work is invaluable. Sincerely, Lexa. Yeah, I'm not familiar with 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 the person, Errant Signal. I'll have to check them out. Uh, One thing I love is that I'm discovering is that... um, you, know, you and I, we have our we have our fields of expertise. There are mm. things that we uh, we know a lot about. There's also shit that I know nothing about. <laughs> and sometimes I find out that like you remember you were in the movie Mimic. You've seen Mimic, right? The yeah, the cockroach. Cockroach. Movie. Okay. So the whole idea is they like release this like new strain of cockroach into the sewers to kill this other breed of cockroach that's like killing people, like it's, yeah, it's like it's spreading disease or yeah. something. Yeah. But and only a few years later, the cockroaches have evolved into this like giant human sized cockroach, and it's like, they but it's evolved, only been they a couple extra fast. Well, so they say I... it's only been a couple of years, but what they say is yes, but there's been so many generations. That a couple of years is actually like millions of generations, and on that timeline, this kind of mutation isn't that weird. That's kind of how I look at popular culture. It's <laughs> like it's only been like a few years, really, like ten years, really, in the long run. Not a lot of time since I decided to really just almost ent- exclusively dedicate myself to film and a little bit to TV. 
And now I'm discovering that there are these huge cultural pockets. Oh, golly. That, like, lived and evolved and became important to everybody and died before I found out about them. Uh-huh. You know? Like, I was... There's, like, the whole genre of, like, YouTube video that's just basically just, like... Here's, like, um... Here is an entire epic history of this thing that happened on Tumblr once. And I was like, is that a big deal? And I watched the video. Oh, shit, it was a big deal. Holy shit. How did I miss this? This is everything. Like, I'm absolutely baffled by, like, how how much popular culture is passing me by. Even uh, when I'm trying to pay attention. uh, I mean, we're old. Yeah. We we need to kind of come to peace with the fact that Mm. you and I don't really have a commanding voice of what, you know, Young people are watching. Young people and, are and, supposed and to have things right about. Now. Yeah, yeah. We, yeah. Well, we don't have. We, we don't have the, what we consume. We don't have as much free time as we used to. That's a lot mm-hmm. of it. When you're young and you have fewer responsibilities, mm-hmm. you have more time to fill it with culture and just random bits of culture and to mm-hmm. be exposed to it and explore. Um, there's a little less peer pressure because yeah. we're not socializing with as many people who are saying we're like not going to school every day. Yeah, like yeah. dude, you got to listen to the new Guar album or whatever like that. That never happened. But like, regardless, oh, I mean, we're we're up on Guar. We're we fine. know Guar. Yeah. We're we're cool. We're cool. Right. That's that's what the kids are into right now. I, Guar. I just got an autographed CD oh of uh, Scum Dogs of the Universe. They remastered it. Oh, we're so old. Okay. <laughs> it's fine. It came out in like 1981 or it's something. It's fine. But I got to say, I, one thing that's cool is that now that it's kind of passed me by, I love learning about it. Mm. It's actually really, really exciting because I'm not learning about this thing that's new and I have to keep up. I'm actually learning about this thing I missed and has a whole history mm. that I can just read or watch a video <laughs> on or whatever. And I love hearing these mm. lists. These are actually really exciting. It's one of my... Favorite yeah, sort uh, of post games from our from our <laughs> podcast is the, the stuff. See what like because that's the stuff you and I are into is our podcast. Now we're hearing about what other people are into, and it turns yeah, out yeah. you're into way more interesting stuff. So thank you for that. Um, uh, then move on. Next letter. That's uh, it. This is a letter from Mark Edward Hoyk. Hello, Mark. Oh, hi, Mark. Mark. Mark's an old friend of ours. Mark um, is one of the smartest people you will ever meet in this industry. Uh, he, he has more information in his brain than like memory mm. alpha. It, it, it's pretty yeah. amazing. Um, Mark says, this is the first time I can recall when I've ever been requested, and I quote, to write into the show and take you to task more publicly, which makes me feel like the equivalent of that infamous Pinky in the Brain and Larry episode, but I am to please. Uh, in last week's episode, there were many glaring errors and mix-ups <laughs> in our cartoon history. Mark knows better than us, so we're going to listen here. Real fast, um, we, we did, uh, Cancel Too Soon did an episode of The New Adventures of Batman hmm. from the 1970s. We talked about Filmation, we talked about Hanna-Barbera. I think also in the Letters episode, we talked about the, our favorite Hanna-Barbera stuff, and we gave a little history of that. Mm. We are not cartoon historians. No, We, we know we, a fair amount, but we're also wrong about stuff. Yeah, so they, Mark took us to me to task on Facebook, and, we not, and I said, write in, we deserve to have this correct, thrown into our correct, faces. Correct this, because we want to make sure that you know, listeners, that we yeah. are being corrected. One of one of the things I will say that Mark is about to bring up is something that I knew in the back of my head, and I just screwed yeah. up, and I'm slapping myself <laughs> You for. know he's going to correct I know, it's like, I know what I did, but right. we'll talk about it when it comes up. Um, let's see. The prime one being that Bibbs failed to recognize that Bill Hanna and Joe Barbera were the creators of Tom and Jerry yep. as resident animators at MGM and supervised the franchise for over two decades until the cartoon division was shut down in the 1950s, which led to the creation of their namesake TV anime. Studio. Okay, so, so I, I mentioned Tom and Jerry as a Hanna Barbera creation, uh-huh. and you said no, they're MGM. Well, I was thinking of Hanna Barbera as a studio, not, not those two guys. 
Hannah and Barbara. That would be like saying that, like, oh, isn't Avatar a Fox movie? Yeah, but William Fox didn't produce it. I suppose not. <laughs> so, so in my head, it made sense. But yes, 100%. Right. Actually, William was, is it William Hannah and with Barbara? Bill, Bill Hannah and Joe Barbera. Bill Barbera and Joe Barbera. They were behind Tom and Jerry, but technically they were owned by MGM, the yeah. characters. So that's, I was right, yeah. but I was totally wrong when I was right about it. Uh, he goes on, uh, and this is quite a long letter here. So this oh, is good. great. Um, many people have some misconceptions about MGM cartoons because to an extent, only a fraction of their output has been regularly shown on TV. And most of that has been either the Tom and Jerry, Droopy, or Barney Bear series, or the one shots by Tex Avery. Plus, they were not as prone to distinguish their directors in the same way that WB did, and there was a producer named Fred Quimby, mm, yep. who always got the last and largest credit, even though he had nothing to do with the cartoon. He was just in charge of the Dune division, the same way that Leon Schlesinger was at Warner Brothers. Okay, I know you're a certain age if you can picture Fred Quimby's signature. I can see yeah. Fred Quimby's <laughs> if you signature saw, If you head. see Fred Quimby's signature. The second I heard the name, I was I saw the title card. Yeah. You, you were born before that 1982. That was emblazoned into my brain. Uh, so I understand how the mistake can be made, because MGM Studio is seen as, as more of a monolith, but truth is, many name animators had stints there, just not the... Just not H.B. and Avery, but Ub Iwerks, who made Flip the Frog, and Hugh Harmon and Rudolph Ising, who had literally created Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies. Their MGM tunes were called Happy Harmonies. Mm. Yes, in the 70s, Hanna-Barbera did a revival of Tom and Jerry for Saturday Mornings that later went into syndication, but those tunes belonged to MGM since they owned the characters. Filmation had to go, uh, had to go with them, uh, had another go with them in the 1980s as well. So... Hanna-Barbera and created Tom and Jerry. They were revived yeah. in the 70s, and then Filmation did uh, Tom and Jerry in the 80s. Ironic. And I don't know who did that 90s animated film. I don't think it was any of those. Oh, films. that was awful. You no, know, where Tom and Jerry spoke. That was yeah. Like, kind of no, thank you. They did occasionally, but it was always like a one-off joke. Yeah, it was like, a cartoon. don't you believe it. Don't you believe it. No, no idea what the hell that was in reference to. It's got to be <laughs> reference to something. Um, as right. for other Hanna-Barbera details, the Fantastic Four were the only Marvel characters they had access to. The show you referenced that rotated through other characters was The Marvel Superheroes, which came out in the late 60s at about the same time as Fantastic Four, ah. and was from the same animation studios, uh, Grand Trey Lawrence Krantz, and that uh, that did the original Spider-Man series. Hanna-Barbera somehow kept the Fantastic Four license for a long while, which is how we ended up with Saturday morning shows like Fred and Barney Meet the Thing. Good times. And naturally, it's significantly difficult uh, to see now since Disney owns Marvel, but arch-rivals Warner Brothers own the Hanna-Barbera library. The groovy ghost cartoon you were trying to remember was The Funky Phantom. I had already been corrected about Funky <clears throat> Phantom. I kept thinking about he's a hip cat ghost who walks around with teenagers and helps them solve mysteries. <clears throat> Groovy Ghost makes sense, but he was, in fact, the Funky Phantom. Yeah, the Funky Phantom, one of the many awful yeah. ripoffs of Scooby-Doo, Mystery with Teens, and a coward foil they launched. This time with a ghost and his dog from 1776, because, you know, Bicentennial. And <laughs> Two Stupid Dogs was the first Hanna-Barbera project after their absorption into the Cartoon Network, which was followed by the Cartoon Cartoon Shows. Car you know, Cartoon Cartoons. Yeah, the um, Powerpuff the Girls, Johnny Bravo. The series spawned by yeah. shorts in their What a Cartoon program. First wave was Dexter's Laboratory, Johnny Bravo, and Cow and Chicken. I, I Cow and Chicken! Cow and that chicken. was the other one we couldn't remember. Uh, then yeah. they were followed by the Powerpuff Girls, Ed, Ed, and Eddie, and notably the Grim Adventures of Billy and Mandy. Yeah. Yeah, I like Cow and Chicken. It's it's Cow and funny. Charlie Adler uh, does almost all the voices, yeah. and then Michael Dorn plays I Am Weasel, I, which I is like great. I like most of those early shows. I yeah, never quite yeah. got into Ed, Ed, and Eddie for some reason. I don't know why, but but like mm -hmm. the other ones, I loved. Yeah. Uh, 
uh, Grim, Grim Adventures of Billy and Mandy, which I am deducing neither of you are familiar with, because if you were, you would have recognized that its premise of the Grim Reaper being locked into indentured servitude into a psychotic little girl and her hapless brother was stolen almost note for note uh, by your boyfriend, Psycho Gorman. <laughs> <laughs> we're very fond of Psycho Gorman. Yeah. And we'll be discussing this matter a little later on. Well, to be fair, that's also very similar to a show called Golan the Insatiable. Uh, which was uh, created by oh, Josh yeah, Miller, yeah, yeah. who we'd had on the show a long time ago when we had a different program. He also wrote the, uh, co-wrote the Sonic the Hedgehog movies, hmm. and I used to be on a trivia team with him. Nice. Yeah. Uh, to also address something from a couple episodes earlier, Whitney had described the Three Stooges as being angry and aggressive, and I feel like this is a little unfair to them. They hit uh, each other with wrenches. Oh, I'm sorry. Their physical abuse of one another isn't is is it's, not aggressive. It's, it's mild and, and and friendly. What I always sense was this was the appeal of the trios, and uh, this was the appeal of the trio was that since it was in their prime, involved a pair of siblings and their childhood friend, they were depicting the wild mood swings of brothers and how in the same 60 seconds you can be best friends and then bitterly uh, bitterly driven to petty violence over some misunderstanding and then united again against a common threat. As such, all the boinks and slaps that fill a typical Stooges short are never premeditated or intentionally malicious. They always come from a uh, momentary frustration during a larger program where one has screwed up and they are distracted long enough to fight about it. Then they come to their senses and try to finish the task. Uh... I agree, but they hit each other with wrenches and shit. It's still pretty abusive. It's not. Yeah. It's not like if it was just like the po- the eye pokey thing, which is pretty violent to begin with. Actually, we mm. we like to think of it as a silly thing, but like seriously, you could really hurt someone and permanently blind them doing that. I, I uh, appreciate that the Farrelly brothers and their Three Stooges movie, yeah, they uh, ended with a disclaimer saying, "Don't actually poke each other in the eyes." I appreciated that. That was nice. Mm. Listen, I'm all for slapstick comedy, but there comes a point where you realize there's a certain level to slapstick that is. Is just pure violence mm. and on some level it is okay to say you know i think that's a smidge too much for me well the thing i can appreciate about the stooges is that it was never like permanent damage they didn't like, yeah, they were, like each cartoons. other and they didn't like start bleeding and crying oh god yeah. you knocked out my teeth you no know, no they like were clearly cartoons but yeah. at the same time because they were human I feel like it's a little different. It comes across a little different than than their particular breed of of Uh, ultraviolence than if, you know, the Roadrunner drops a, you know, an anvil on Wile E. Coyote. I feel like it just comes across a little different. Listen, I'm not saying the Three Stooges are crap or anything like that. I'm just saying it's a slightly different beast. Uh, Mark says, I recall Penn Gillette, a huge fan of the Three Stooges, mm. showing off a rare photo of the Howard brothers and Larry Fine out of character in street clothes, talking about how at the core they were truly friends who liked to be in each other's company even when not working, and thus, when things got heated, they ultimately solved the problem. Well, well yeah, um, I would hope so. I, don't, I hope they're not actually hurting <laughs> each other in real life. <clears throat> By contrast, if you want the textbook of aggressive and angry in classic comedy, Abbott and Costello, yes. a more appropriate depiction... Uh, which is one of the one of the reasons I've uh, never been able to warm to them. The bulk of their shtick is essentially Bud trying to screw over Lou, even if it means his own loss as well. Yes, many comedy pairings are based on the premise of a con and a dupe who can't get past their respective natures, but I always found their routines really ugly in terms of how much Lou gets abused for no good reason, and more importantly, without vindication. In the restaurant sketch, they never get the food. In the Alexander 2222, Lou doesn't win the contest, and so forth. It's about perpetuating the problem. And after a while, for me, that gets tedious because now we know how every encounter they have is going to end. And I feel bad for Lou, like, really bad, because he's an everyman with any significant personality flaws, 
that would mollify this mistreatment the same way that say Stan Laurel is, is a coward and Oliver Hardy is a blowhard bring misfortune on themselves. Yeah. Somehow Bud attached himself like a leech and he's going to gaslight this poor soul for all eternity. <laughs> I'm actually with Mark on this. I've never been a huge Abbott and Costello fan. Oh, I, I get, I get why people love them. Yeah. But for, but it's kind of the same thing. It's like, why are you together if Bud hates Lou so much? Mm. And he hates his ass too. It's not like, it's not like Pinky and the Brain where they're literally trapped in a cage together and I get it. Like, after a while, I'm just like, get new friends. You clearly hate this guy. <laughs> it's not like you ever, like, it's not like, I oh, he, sometimes he drives me up the wall, but we're really good buds. Like, no, you just hate. It just seems so harsh to me. <laughs> anyway. Uh, and, uh, I mean, Lou's was a little annoying, but my God, he didn't deserve that shit. Uh, which brings things back to Psycho Gorman. As B. Peterson and I are both proud and vocal haters of this movie, oh, we each have our own reasons why we shake our damn heads. You know what? We can just stop reading this letter right now. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, uh, we all we each have our own reasons why we shake our damn heads at all the praise you uh, you and so many others have lash, lavished upon it. I will put forth that a huge horking problem I have is the dynamic between the kids. Comedy involving a bratty child works best when the victim has personality flaws of their own, mm. being an adult who behaves worse, or another child's too resilient to be seriously hurt. That is the key why, to me, Billy and Mandy succeeds, but Psycho Gorman fails. Billy is always absurdly happy and thus too dumb to feel any pain when Mandy mm. abuses him. He'll get over it quickly. But Luke is a nice normal boy with nothing annoying about him who's done nothing to incur the constant torture Mimi inflicts on him. Mm -hmm. And he's in legit pain when she does. So sorry, but it's not bloody funny to see him constantly getting his ass kicked. By contrast, the needy best friend who is crushing on Mimi is somewhat of a twerp, and it's not as dispiriting when he gets turned into a freak. I actually felt worse for that kid than I do for the brother. I'm not saying life is destroyed. What are you talking about? He was was immediately addressing something I was going to bring up, but I'm not saying that the battering of an innocent is never funny. (laughs) But for me, it ain't funny when Lou gets the shit beat out of him. It ain't funny when Luke does either, especially since neither of their tormentors ever gets comeuppance for it. Mm -hmm. It's the literal definition of punching down. Uh, as for the rampant misogyny uh, the, and chicken shit nihilism within Psycho Gorman, I'll rant about that another time. Here ended the lesson the Hoik has spoken, Mark I, Edward Hoik. Here's what I'm going to say about the dynamic between the kids oh. and Psycho Gorman, which, by the way, Psycho Gorman is a movie Whitney and I love, uh, and we're not alone on this. Some people do, it does rub some people the wrong uh, way. And I get, I get it, and I get why. It's an abrasive film in a lot of ways. Mm. But I would argue that the dynamic between... The little girl, who's kind of like Louise from Bob's Burgers, if she was like five times meaner, like uh, five, five times meaner to the point of being kind of a psychopath. Yeah, and I think that's the, I think that's the point here. Uh, whereas, and her long-suffering brother uh, just sort of grins and bears it and has to mm. deal with her crap. Um, it's not a family film. It's not a light <laughs> comedy. Yeah, it's a horror movie. That's also funny. And horror is allowed to be cynical. Mm. Horror is allowed to be mean. Well, comedy is allowed to be those things, too. I agree, but I think horror is encouraged to. Whereas comedy can get away with it if you do it right. Whereas horror, I think you're allowed to have... fear and death. You're allowed to have shitty endings. Not shitty, but you're allowed to have mean-spirited endings. Unhappy endings. You're allowed to have like people who are terrible get away with things because horror is about... Dealing with situations that are not comfortable, that don't feel righteous, that are that are things that we're kind of afraid of, and 
some of my favorite horror or horror type movies are simply movies about really terrible people who are allowed to succeed. Hmm. <laughs> and I think that the kids, I think that the kid in Psycho Gorman and Psycho Gorman himself, there are things that I love about them as people. They're hmm. also really terrible and they're allowed to succeed. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's I, just I think, the movie. It cultivates different expectations for uh, me. Mark called it half-ass nihilism. It's more of a, a very adolescent version of nihilism. Sure, but I appreciate a, a, a story about um, essentially. It essentially asks if what would the world look like if a, a bully or a psychopath won. This little yeah. little girl is clearly not healthy from the start, and now mm-hmm. she's given ultimate power in the form of essentially Thanos. Yeah. What does she turn into? Just more of a monster. There's no lesson for this person. She's already too far gone. Yeah, and any lesson they learn is somehow warped by just how kind of vile both she and Psycho Gorman are. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. and that's that's the treat. I think that's. <laughs> I, I think, and I think that's fun. Maybe that says something about how twisted I am. But. I think I think there is a place for that, and I think the place for that is often in the horror genre, mm-hmm. uh, and that's why Psycho Gorman gets away with that. If this was aimed at younger audiences, if that movie was like a G, I would say I probably agree with you. That's really irresponsible, and it's not very funny because mm-hmm. we're all here just to have a light-hearted good time, right? It's not about that. It is a very fucked up, narrated movie. <laughs> I feel like it's a different... I feel like it cultivates different expectations. But I get where you're coming from. I just disagree. Also, but all the cool monsters. Yeah. I like the mo- the makeup effects in that movie. The, makeup, the makeup's really clever and fun. Especially on a low budget. Like, it's amazing. Anyway, uh, is that the end of Mark's That's letter? That's the end of Mark's letter. Mark, thank you for writing in. Thank you for uh, taking me up on my request uh, to correct... To to, well, hold on. Thank you for taking us uh, to task... Uh, for getting things wrong about cartoons. About Psycho Gorman, not so much of a thank you. <laughs> but I kid because I know you personally. I love you, Mark. Thank you for writing in and thank you for sharing your views. And I'm sorry I don't agree with you on this one, but you're right about so much. <laughs> you're right about so many things. I'm going to take this one, if you don't mind. Anyway, moving on. Here's a letter from Kim. Hello, right. Kim. Uh, hi, Bibbs and Whitney. Longtime listener, first time writer. Well, Hello. Thank you for writing. Yeah, if you're thinking about writing in, do it. Please, we'd love to hear from you. Um, I have really been enjoying your Only the Best series on mm. Patreon. And I wanted to thank you for introducing me to Billy Wilder. Yes. You had such high praise for Double Indemnity a few episodes back that I gave it a watch and loved it. Yes. Uh, I went on to watch quite a few of Wilder's movies, including Sunset Boulevard, The Apartment, Witness for the Prosecution, The Lost Weekend, and Sherlock 17. I enjoyed them all to varying degrees and look forward to continuing to explore his filmography. It's... It's interesting to me that while the movies represented a variety of genres, they did not have a bit of a similar... They did all have a bit of a similar feel. Hmm. He sends his characters on these journeys that somehow feel inevitable, but at the same time seem to turn on a complex series of small decisions and coincidence. Hmm. I really enjoyed how he balanced those narratives. Uh, I was also surprised by how many of his movies included mental health themes, like depression, even in comedies, something I found very relatable. Are there any other Billy Wilder movies you particularly recommend? Are there other movies that you would recommend to someone who enjoys Wilder's works. Thanks for all you do, Kim. Um, well, uh, thank you for that. I'm really, really glad that you've been enjoying your journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, Whitney, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of more Billy Wilder stuff? Uh, well, you saw Sunset Boulevard, you saw The Apartment. Uh, you haven't mentioned Some Like It Hot. It's one of the best oh, yeah. comedies ever made. We just did a commentary track mm-hmm. for that like a month or two ago yeah. on our on our uh, Patreon as well, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Uh, the film that I always recommend from Billy Wilder that he wrote and directed that doesn't get a lot of play, and I've never really understood why. Maybe it's because it's a little acidic and it doesn't have like a lot of like 
obvious entertainment value. Like, it's not like it's Sunset Boulevard's really weird, but it's also like narrated by a corpse, and there's like a funeral for a monkey, and like mm. it's all these things that you're just like, oh shit, I gotta see that. Uh, the film that I highly recommend to everybody is Ace in the Hole. Yeah, that's a good one. Ace in the Hole is fucked up. Uh, Ace in the Hole stars uh, Kirk Douglas as a uh, unscrupulous newspaper reporter who is trying to uh, get himself a scoop. And he uh, happens upon a mining town where there's a cave-in, and he decides to use his influence, to use his wiles, to use his cunning to make the travesty last longer. Like so instead of make, just to make it a bigger story, yeah, to make it a bigger story to to really play up the melodrama, interfere with people's lives, and also, uh, it, you know, oh, we could have them out of here. I forget what the, it's been well since I've seen. Like we could have them out of here in five days, which is you know, it's a trial, but they can make it. And he was like, yes, but how can I make it last like two weeks and risk everyone's life so that my story can be like one a day or like mm. with a five o'clock edition as well? And I can really just rake in the bucks and make this into like my big, this is my career off of this. Uh, and that's evil. <laughs> it's an evil, horrible, shitty thing to do. And Billy Wilder has a lot of things to say about that. And uh, Kirk Douglas has never been better. Uh, it's an excellent film, and uh, I think if you liked Sunset Boulevard or some of the other, like, or the Lost Weekend or some of the other harsher Billy Wilder stuff, that's definitely something to check out. Mm. Um, regarding stuff that's kind of like it, uh, but isn't, I would say The Sweet Smell of Success uh, is a okay. great one to oh, check yeah, out. Yeah, for sure. With Burt Lancaster and uh, Tony Curtis. Yeah, uh, it's kind of, it's kind of a... Um, a skewed take on a character based on Walter Winchell, uh, who was a, a radio uh, reporter and host who had a shocking amount of cultural power hmm. for a long time, and a guy who wants to ingratiate himself into that world and loses his soul in the process, and it's really excellent. Hmm. So that one's definitely uh, something that comes to mind. Gosh, uh, the film's light. Well, the thing is, hmm. <clears throat> Billy Wilder, yeah. Like, he worked in like, a lot of different genres and stuff. Yeah, he made so many different kinds of movies. You uh, did a lot of, like, character work but that's pretty general well they actually made a good point here where it's like these are these are genre films a lot of them but there's a lot of extra character work and there's a lot of close attention paid to people's troubled mental states yeah, yeah. and how that um and how that influences their character and takes the story in unexpected directions um i'm trying to think maybe of like some more interesting crime films of the era, like The Asphalt Jungle, maybe, or... I would uh, say that if if you're looking for a little bit more of a modern example, mm. um, you know the Coen brothers watched every Billy Wilder movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, their, totally. their, their films are a lot more, like, broad and a little bit... Uh, t- tend to play more like fables in a lot of cases. Yeah. Uh, but you can tell that they're trying to delve into, like, similar character... Flaws. I'm thinking like stuff like Miller's Crossing yeah, comes yeah. to mind. That's definitely a Billy Wilder ish mm. kind of thing. Maybe a little bit of Barton Fink mm. in there. Uh, so yeah, that's that's a good example as well. Hopefully you you have an opportunity to check those out uh, mm. too. Um, hmm, yeah, like Billy Wilder, he's such a distinctive voice. It's hard to necessarily wrap our head around like something very like mm-hmm. instantaneous, but um, I, I would recommend just right delving into uh, more acclaimed dramas from the '40s and '50s and '30s, even mm-hmm. uh, because there was a definite uh, uh, attempt to make sure that they were all intelligent and uh, and character based. Oh, here's a good one from the 1930s, uh, and we talked about this on one of our earlier episodes of Only the Best. If you haven't checked it out, Five Star Final. 
It's very Billy oh. Wilder esque, I think. Uh, I, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, it's uh, it's also also a newspaper story. It's about the uh, bustling world of constantly having to put out a newspaper, and back then twice a day, uh, and uh, trying to make a story out of nothing again. It's actually a good double feature with Ace in the Hole. Now that I think about it. Uh, so uh, yeah, I don't know. Hopefully that helps out a little bit. Hmm. But uh, I'm really really glad we could help uh, introduce you to Billy Wilder and um, and onward and onward. Hmm. Oh, um, here's one. Preston Sturges did a lot of like very madcap comedies, but uh, the one early one that was his first directorial debut that is a bit more of a political satire called The Great McGinty. Oh, I haven't seen The Great McGinty. Great McGinty is really excellent. It's not as funny as some of his later things, but it's a really it's a really acidic film about uh, political corruption in the 1940s. Yeah, uh, and uh, he won an Oscar for it, and it's really excellent. So I highly recommend checking it out. Okay, all right. Um, Next letter. Let's do it. Uh, here's a letter from Tom. Hi, Tom. And then exclamation points. Um, to my two favorite critics. Oh. Uh, William and some other guy, I guess. Stop um, that. I found your recent discussion on your latest Cancel Too Soon, Batman, about older IPs quite fascinating. Hmm. Uh, you both discussed the lack of interest for older properties. Ghostbusters was your notable example, mm. and how younger audiences are not really interested in these older properties in today's society. This is a common debate me and my friend, both in our late 20s, often have. My friend is a big fan of, quote, older properties, and particularly is a big fan of things like Power Rangers and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, sure. consuming all the media they put out, shows, books, comics, films. Mm. With every new iteration of these properties, or Ghostbusters, Human, etc., I often ask, who are these being made for? A recent example is the newest Power Rangers movie, 2017, I think. Uh, I remember that my friend and others online complained about the changes that had been made to the previously established story, character structures, etc. I recall I heard similar complaints about the most recent He-Man Netflix animated show. Older mm-hmm. fans were really angry that they had changed some of the beats from the original series. Yeah. My friend often complains that these changes are pandering to reach a new audience while they ignore the needs and interests of the older, more dedicated fan bases. A notable ex- example is... The Iron Heart comic book, mm. where a young teenage girl becomes the new Iron Man, so to speak. His complaint is that the fans of the character, IP, story, canon, and so on don't want this, and is often, and is often the case as to why properties make these changes that uh, often fail or fizzle out quickly, mm-hmm. because they're simply ignoring the dedicated fan base and are instead more concerned about getting new fans, something mm-hmm. which I think is crucial because it adds longevity with a newer demographic. Yeah. <clears throat> With properties like Power Rangers even or even Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I struggle to think of a modern cultural presence that these IPs have on young or old audiences. So my question is this. Mm. How should, in your opinion, of course, these properties continue when moving forward? Do these older IPs even have a spot in the pop culture landscape of today? Like that we're talking about old things from like <laughs> the late 80s. Well, it's pretty old. Um, yeah. How do older IPs launch new products that can both appeal to older fans while not seeming like they are pandering, if that is even even the Mm -hmm. correct term, to reach newer fans with changes, tweaks, or creative liberties involved? Are there any examples of an older franchise relaunching and connecting with both sides of these audiences simultaneously? Mm. Thanks for all you do. Your biggest Welsh fan, Tom. Hi, Tom. Um... That's a great question, and it is something that we're talking about a lot. A lot of uh, studios are very dedicated to pre-existing popular IP stands for intellectual property. Uh, And uh, what that means is that there's an audience built in. Mm. You don't have to start everything marketing from scratch. You know, there's already I, I people are going to check it out just because it exists and is part of a franchise. And I, and I think that's the most appealing reason why a lot of these studios keep latching on to mm-hmm. IP. Yeah. It's because the, the, the marketing is done for them. They don't yeah. have to sell you on a concept. Yeah. Uh, uh, the, when the, it comes to 
the old versus the new fan base. Uh-huh. Um, uh, as a critic, uh-huh. I I just have to throw this out there. I don't care. Yeah. I don't care how the studio is going to make this thing last. I just want a good story. It's not um, our job to tell them how to make it last and how to keep milking Mm. money out of it. Uh, We will judge what they give us based on what they do. Do they try to just focus on the old fan base? We'll tell them if they did a good job. Do they try to change things up and reach Mm. a new fan base? We'll tell them if they did a good job. But I do have some thoughts on it. Here's my thought. Mm-hmm. I think that if a studio is going to be so dedicated that they have to just keep on bringing something back, the I, the thought of dropping it is more abundant. Yeah, not you, not, you not going to happen. Can't, you can't even think about that. We paid the money for it. We're going to do something you can't, with it. You can't it. put it down. My goodness, yeah, what well, a silly we, again, idea. We invested in it. Like it's a thing now. We're not going to uh, not my, do something with Batman. We have to do something. My, my right? idea is put it down. Yeah. Don't make a new thing. Mm-hmm. Don't continue to milk it. Let the film is still there. A young audience can find it. It doesn't have to be yeah. new for a young audience to find it. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, if you're going to make something out of an older property, you're going mm-hmm. to redo it. You're going to recast it, start something new. Uh, find what's in that story. That's significant. Mm hmm. What 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 appealed to the audience when it first became popular? What is, what is the thing that makes what, it yeah, work? Not wh- the superficial trappings. Mm-hmm. What's the core? Not, not the colors. Not the you know the, the character names. Not yeah. yeah, not those things. What what's at the heart of the story? Let's look at Ninja Turtles. Why did that appeal to audiences when it first came out in the mid eighties? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it, it was a satire. Mm-hmm. It was meant to send up a lot of the darker comics at the time. From what I understand, it was mm. specifically like Daredevil comics. It was sending. It was out. more the Frank Miller kind of vibe. Mm. Although I would argue that the truly popular version of that—that's mm. the original comic. Yeah, the truly popular version of Teenage Mutant Turtles was the show, and to a lesser extent, the movie. And what's the title of the show? Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It's absurd. The the selling point is its absurdity. Yeah. So. What is still absurd about the Ninja Turtles? The problem is nothing. It's an ex- an expected part. It's really yeah, it, a well known part of popular it, it, culture. There's now. nothing that's outlandish yeah. or surprising about it by now. It is utterly familiar. Yeah. So what yeah. you have to do is find the genre tropes of the day, and add the Ninja Turtles in a way that makes those things absurd. Maybe. Uh, don't put work. the Ninja Turtles in like a superhero universe because mm-hmm. that's used to absurd things. Yeah. Put them against Jason Bourne, something really kind of steely and serious. Well, they've done that. Like, and they had like the Teenage Ninja Turtles meet Batman. Apparently, it was quite good. Okay. Like, because yeah, Batman is so self serious. Like, that was the idea. So, like, you put them in something um, like, like a genre that takes itself really mm, seriously. Yeah. You might have something kind of funky. Uh, so, th- that would be my idea is like, mm. think about what it is, what's sort of like the central appealing concept of. Mm-hmm. A, a property that we keep on going back to. Yeah, I agree. And try to find what sort of the spirit of the thing is, and then you update it mm-hmm. based on what the spirit of today is. Right. Uh, and change whatever the hell you need to. Mm-hmm. If you get that spirit right, I think older fans and newer fans or whatever you're trying to reach will kind of go to it because that's what drew us to it in the first place. I think there's a couple of things that we need to consider. This is actually a really big, complicated thing because mm-hmm. not all franchises are equal. Uh, one thing I thought was interesting when we t- talked about, because we were talking about older franchises that have just kind of like, don't necessarily, okay, there, there's different kinds of older franchises. There's older franchises where they were really popular, but we haven't had a new thing in a long time. Mm-hmm. Then there's older franchises where for one reason or another, or one way or another, they're still churning them out. There are still, there's still new Pokemon content. There's still new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles shows. Mm-hmm. 
They never stopped Pokemon. They just kept on They going. never stopped. So, like, so there was a brief pause for Teenage Ninja Turtles, but they came back pretty quick. And they've been a mainstay in one form or another. They've had a couple of different reboots. Um, but they're constant. They're, they're, these aren't actually old IPs. Those are just mainstay mm. IPs. I'm thinking more about stuff that, like, had its day, came and went. And uh, maybe people are still familiar with it, but the last couple of times, like The Shadow is a good example here. The Shadow is an iconic, important, early superhero. Mm. But we haven't had, aside from maybe some comic books, we haven't really had a major attempt to resurrect The Shadow as a major storytelling property since the 90s. Mm. So The Shadow is largely dead. Like maybe you could bring him back and do something interesting with him. But that one's largely dead. Whereas Power Rangers, they're still making Power Rangers. Like, these things are still on TV. They've evolved kind of organically. It's not like, yeah, well, we had this thing, and we haven't done it in 10 years, and now 10 years later, we're doing this new, radically different version, where fans are like, well, but we like the old one, and we don't get a lot of it. Yeah, There's a difference between, well, we, don't like the old, we like the old one, and we don't get a lot of it, versus we've done a million of these, they've been popular for a long time, or we're going to do a major shift, like an Ironheart, which I feel is an entirely different entity than that. Yeah, I'm yeah. unfamiliar with Ironheart, yeah. but um, going back to what I was saying, though, uh, mm. maybe you're talking about, like, the old things aren't being made available, and now they're sort of changing it around in a way that's upsetting to the people who like the older thing well but the other but this and, brings uh, me to my other point though, okay which we my other point which is also uh we all need to get the fuck over it like <laughs> I, I really we cannot listen it's one thing i agree with you i think that at the core of almost any successful intellectual property where it's survived different throughout the years had different permutations there's something in there that makes that thing that thing and you absolutely can change it enough that it is a completely different thing and you've missed the whole point. However, if it's actually that good a storytelling device, idea, character, whatever, it can withstand some changes because it's already gone through some. Yeah. A lot of the things that we take for granted about stuff like, I don't know, Batman, yeah. uh, it's, have, it's, come for, have come from major permutations. You know where the Batcave came from? Not the comics. <laughs> that was introduced in the movie serial. That was an unfaithful adaptation of Batman. And yet here we are. We don't care anymore. A lot of things that when they tried to do this like new version of a character, people freaked the fuck out. I remember when um, they introduced Kyle Rayner as the new Green Lantern. There was a whole, and this is before the internet or before the internet had like all this power. Um, there was like this whole letter writing campaign to bring Hal Jordan back and kill Kyle Rayner because nobody likes this Kyle Rayner guy. But Kyle Rayner stuck around long enough that that was someone's first Green Lantern and now he is just as ingrained in the mythos as any other character. Mm. You let these things stick around long enough. You let people find those characters. They will become the thing that they grow up with and they will have just as much validity to them and they will become the thing that older mm. fans like. You well, cannot here, exclusively... A... You cannot exclusively cater to people who liked an older version of the thing forever because eventually those people will outgrow will, will, it, will outgrow it and then eventually, I mean, a long enough timeline, they'll die. And then we didn't invite anyone new into our club. And now the club is gone. If you want the club to continue after older generations have moved on or simply passed away, you have to at least once in a while invite people in and say, hey, check out our stuff. You want to make it kind of yours? The, yeah, we can make it kind of yours. We can give you a corner here or, or fucking take it over. I don't care. I, th I think the issue here is um, 
a, a lot of the people who are are fans of a thing mm. uh, aren't necessarily fans of uh, any sort of core concept in the thing. Okay, they're not interested in the complexity of the character. Oh. They're interested in the superficial stuff. Some people, and are. that's people you know, that, that's why we're making a Han Solo movie, and he's dressed the same. Yeah, he wears the same black vest in Star Wars as he does in Solo: A Star Wars Story. It's like, yeah, okay, well, if he's not much more than the costume, then that's not much of a character, is it? We're not really delving into the. Core I feel like that's a lot of those. Star Wars. I remember when um, Obi Wan Kenobi showed up, and he was like in Tatooine, and he was wearing these like desert robes, oh. and that was just what Obi Wan Kenobi wore. And then when we finally make the prequels, we find out that every Jedi wears that. That's like Je- their uniform. Jedi robes. Yeah. It's, <laughs> I, I thought that's just what he wore that day and he happened to be wearing it that mm-hmm. day because it's very convenient for, for a, a sandy desert. place. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Having every Keeping Jedi wear that is just this weird justification for your nostalgia. Like, oh, we're just never going to come up with yeah. anything new. The um, Those prequel films are so bad about those uh, Star Wars prequel films. They have some rough bits, Um, yeah. There's a scene in one of them Mm. uh, where children are handling lightsabers. Uh, Yeah, I think it's in Attack of the Clones. Well, there's Attack of the Clones, and then in Revenge of the Sith, they're like fighting for their lives with lightsabers. No, there's, it's like a training sequence. Then it's Attack of the Clones. You're yeah, where, the clones, um, yeah. And there's these little floating uh, spheres that are like shooting yeah. laser beams at them, and their eyes are covered. Yeah. And they can block the laser beams with the laser sword. Yeah. Uh, okay, that... That was just that, shit that they happened to have with the Millennium Falcon. Yeah, th- that's calling back to a, a scene from Star Wars where they yeah. covered up Luke's face, and he did the same thing with this little game ball, which was something that, the, yeah, it was a game. Yeah. It, so that was just now this is like part of the Jedi training. Like that's the what nostalgia yeah. imagery does. Yeah. It kind of repurposes everything. It canonizes everything. It gives everything mm. weight, even if it didn't like my, my my perfect example of this is actually from the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Where the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie, a lot of fun. I've it's it's overblown and ridiculous, but I have a lot of fun with it. In the second and third film and, and onward, they took every little tiny detail from that first movie. And tried to make it seem like it was important. Right down to, like, in number three, when it was like, oh, yes, every one of the pirate lords has, like, one thing that, like, make is their pirate lord bobble. And that pirate lord bobble is right, the most important right. thing. They You would never get rid of it. It's super important. And it turns out it's one of Jack's, like, beads in his hair. Like, mm. that was important this whole time. No, it wasn't. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, you decided retroactively it was, but because can, people associate that thing with the character. C- considering though, uh, like when I go to see a movie with these things, and yeah. one of those nostalgia images will show on the screen, people get up and they cheer, they make a lot of yeah, noise, they sure. want to see that. So I think that's what there's some, there's that's some what appeal. we're talking about here is that a lot of these superficial elements is what's most important to a lot of people. I think it's, but here's the thing: I think it's not. I don't know. If, I know it's important to some people, but for me, it can be momentarily exciting. Like Just when like I see, shock of recognition, like the, shock, yeah. the shock of recognition, or like, oh, I wasn't expecting. There's a couple of like surprise bits that happen in Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. It's still too early to go full spoilers on that, but like, there's a bit that in the middle where I'm like, oh hey, hmm. that's neat. <laughs> and there's a part of me that goes, yeah, that's neat. But if you're not going to do anything with it in the story, that lasts for a second. Yeah, and it's a fun second. And I can enjoy that second because there's, it's supposed to be a moment of uh, discovery or rediscovery or recognition. But after that goes away, the perfect example of this is if you watch Spider-Man No Way Home at home. Uh-huh. 
in the movie, there's a bit later on where they open up the portal and uh, Andrew Garfield Spider-Man walks through and he takes off his mask and it goes like, and he just sort of, hey, he holds up his hands. Musical sting. Yeah. And in the theater, I mean, if you saw it in the theater, especially like opening weekend before everyone knew all this was officially happening, people went nuts. There was screams. There was applause. It was a fun moment to share with a lot of people. Mm. Oh, neat. They brought Andrew Garfield back. When you watch it at home where it's just you on a couch... And Andrew Garfield takes off his mask, and there is a long pause in the film <laughs> to to hold for the audience to be shocked. Aww. You realize that moment of shock doesn't last. That moment of shock is now awkward. Hmm. These things you can't really like plan for that stuff. But we've gotten a lot into the weeds here. When it comes to should an intellectual property cater to the fans, or should intellectual property move on? It has to move on, or it will die. It has to move on, or eventually the only people who care about it will be the people who cared about it a long time ago, and you won't allow anyone else in on that. You have to invite them in somehow. How you do that might change, might vary, depends on the property, depends on who you decide to give the reins to, but at some point, you have to let new people play with your toys. But uh, if the audience is big enough Mm -hmm. that likes it the old way, Uh and they're going to pay money until they die... Mm Where's the incentive to change anything? Where's the incentive to invite well, people? Well, I think that's one of the problems with not just the industry, but with humanity in general. Mm. We're very short-sighted. Yeah. Mm. We think about what's right in front so, of us. Well, we also, don't think about 50 years from now. We don't think about 20 years from now. We I think, think about five years from now. And this idea of inviting people in is, all again, predicated on this notion that everything must continue indefinitely. Well, of course It's okay not. to just let the stuff die out. It is okay to let stuff die out. But if you let, want let it to continue, if you have something that you want to continue, that you care enough, well, like that you think... Well, like if I'm an executive or something, but, but I'm not. Let, I'm a but, consumer. But, but, but let's fuck that. Let's not even yeah. talk about that. Let's just say you care about the story. All right. Okay. Let's say you care a lot about. Let's not even comics. Like let's just talk about as the world turns. Okay. As the world turns was a soap opera I watched with my mom growing up. It was canceled in the late 2000s, like 2007, 2009, mm. something like that. Uh, yeah, so but there's, it, there's four left. Four of the major. Sites. I know. There's but as the world turns had been on for over 50 years, mm. daily. That's an astounding amount of television. That's an astounding number of ongoing storylines, characters. And you know what? Over the course of 50 years, people were introducing their children to this show. People were rediscovering this show. And then after a while, they weren't really introducing it to new audiences anymore. They weren't really making it accessible to new audiences anymore. There was a time when As the World Turns was a daytime soap opera. was so popular, they had a primetime spinoff. <laughs> so that people who weren't at home could see some as the world turns at night because they weren't home during the day. Right after a while, it stopped bringing in new audiences. It stopped catering to new audiences. It stopped making a name for itself, and then it just quietly died. And you could say, "Well, there you go. It had a great run, and indeed it did." But if you really cared about it, if you were like someone who worked on that show or always wanted to work on that show, and you wanted it to continue, you would have something invested in trying to keep it going somehow. So if you care enough about something to say, like, I really hope it has a future, I highly recommend supporting the same, supporting this thing and not being so protective of it that you reject any new ideas entering it. Because if you do that, eventually Mm -hmm. it will die. And maybe, and some things just die. They do. Eventually they do. But if you don't want it to, you have to let new people in. I I think the idea of... uh, Thinking of like a major entertainment franchise as requiring your support is a little bit of a dangerous way to it's start not about thinking of it. Support. It's just about but, if you uh, care enough. 
well, if, if you if you care enough to support, if, if you care enough to like, if I like, look, it's not you, about. But here's the thing: wait, mate, you like Star Trek so much that you mm. made me watch every single episode. <laughs> yes, I did. Okay, you <laughs> care enough that you wanted to share your love of that thing mm. with someone and then perpetuate it. Uh, that's a that's, microcosm, but it's still, yeah. but that's, but that's one example, right? That's me as somebody who likes a thing, sharing it with a friend, though. That's not, I realize that. That's not me but, as an executive trying to. I'm not talking about executives. I'm talking about fans. Okay. I'm talking about fans, and I think we run into this a lot where there's often like some gatekeeping. Hmm. Like you're only a true Doctor Who fan if you watch the right. Patrick Troutner or some bullshit like that. Like it's it's about as a fan if you want other people to join you in this, and that's the only way these things keep going is if be- new people jump on board. Hmm. You have to allow that there will be things that they respond to that you don't, or that there will be new takes on this thing that might appeal to other people and invite other people into this thing that you love. I think you need to be open to that. Mm. Because it doesn't mean it's always going to be good. Sometimes they do suck, but like you have to be open to it. I think being close-minded about it isn't going to help anyone. You're just mm-hmm. going to you're just hastening the the quickening, basically <laughs> hastening yeah. the death of the of the thing you love. I think. Uh, we 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 really ramble on this one. Do we have time for one more letter? Uh, sure, I can do one. Let's more do one letter. more letter just so we because that because that one took up a lot. Uh, one actually came in while we were reading. Oh well, there's so, the rule. Uh, here we go. We have to read this one. If you if you send us an email while we are recording, we have to read that email, even if it's spam. <laughs> that has <laughs> not come up yet, but if it no, does, I, we will have to do it. Ooh, a Nigerian prince. No, I'm kidding. Okay. Um, this is from Keith ZG. Hello, Keith ZG. Hi. Um, the, the subject line is, there is a TV series where Doctor Strange is addicted to heroin. <gasps> what? I think we, we uh, threw off a quip about how uh, it, it's not R-rated because there's not like yeah. drug problems or sexual problems. No, right? it's, like, it's still... Not, not really adult material in that movie. It, it's still a movie for, like, adolescent right. audiences. It's just a little bit more violent than the new Doctor yeah. Strange, but, like, not even that much. Anyway, uh, but Keith says, uh, it's called The Nick. And it was directed oh. by Steven Soderbergh. <laughs> okay, with a score by Cliff Martinez. Uh, fortunately, uh, fortunately, but also unfortunately, since it keeps uh, kept it from being cancelled too soon territory, it got two seasons and might even get more after a long gap, but hey, in the free time you don't have... Check it out. <laughs> Keith ZG, I'm American Canadian, dual citizen, so that can be uh, ZG or ZG, and I said ZG. Nice. No, Thank you it. so that's much. <laughs> well, whatever. I'm glad we I'm glad we made time for it. Thank you so much. Thank you to everyone who wrote in. If we didn't get to your email, we might next week. Uh, if you have anything that's timely, feel free to nudge us on Twitter. Our Twitter account is at Critic Acclaim. I'm also at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. If you want to write into a future episode of We've Got Mail, it's real easy. Just send us an email. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Or if you'd prefer to send us an actual physical letter, as some do. Mm-hmm. We would love to hear from you that way. It's not always a treat to get mail. Uh, Whitney, what is our P.O. Box? Yeah, send it uh, to the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. And as someone mentioned, we also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash network. If you would also like to hear our Oscars podcast, Only the Best, where we review every single film ever nominated for Best mm-hmm. Picture, that's available on our Patreon page. We also have the continuation of Holy Batman, which will have a new episode next week. We're reviewing every single one of the Adam West, Burt Ward, Batman adventures. Uh, we also have uh, our show, All Our Yesterdays, where we review every single episode of Star Trek in order. We're almost done with season two of Next Generation. 
really plugging along. Mm. Uh, well, and we're nearly at Star Trek Five. I know it's very exciting. Uh, and uh, we also have uh, commentary tracks, and uh, our new feature is we're doing monthly trivia nights, uh, which I think, depending on when this episode goes live, might even be today. Okay. Is our first one, which is very fun. We've been looking mm-hmm. forward to it, so we're doing that with our patrons on the line, if you will. Uh, so. Uh, yeah, thank you everybody for supporting the show. Especially a big thank you to all of our patrons and everybody who wrote in. And uh, I guess that's it. Mm-hmm. Sincerely yours, Pips and Whitney. Mm-hmm.